What's happening, ladies and gents? This is Radical episode 123. I've got a wonderful guest tonight. I am super excited. We've been trying to get this together since PA. Um, he is the author of A Parasite's Paradise, which I got to tell you is a really cool read that I was not expecting. Um, and he's also an anti-war vet. He's the host of the Aggressive Pacifist uh, podcast, and he runs the Porcupine News Network. Very accomplished man, man after my own heart, the great Harrison Kemp. Welcome to Radical, brother. How's it going, man? Glad to be here. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm stoked to have you. Um, I got to tell you, the, uh, the the lead up to this in, in the last week, I hadn't really gotten into your book yet. Uh, you, you gave me an autographed copy while we were up there in Pennsylvania. I, I think we probably just need to start from there. I, Let's do that. Yeah. Let's let's do that. Um, Harrison and I, man, I, I rolled into town on Friday. I got there super early because, you know, cheaper flights and all that fun stuff. So I got in. I was like, man, we're, we're communicating through what we communicate through. And I said, man, I'm hungry as a hostage. Does anybody go want to go and grab something to eat? And like Harrison and, and a, a group just mobbed over, got me up from the hotel. We we got into the back of uh, what was it like a little Toyota or something like yeah, three big a little Mazda tiny oh. little thing <laughs> like hey guys what's going on y'all want to go to something to eat let's pack in this car uh and we went down we had some some beers and uh some good food man and uh really kind of just got to know each other spent an afternoon and uh, i mean really it, it was amazing to meet people you know that are kind of your, your tribe yeah it's really cool too where like i got woken up that morning by my friend bill the extremely tall guy and he yeah. was like, hey, we're going to lunch with Shane Hazel. And I was like, why are you lying to me right now? <laughs> and he's like, no, dude, we're going to lunch with Shane Hazel. Sean's going to be here in five minutes. So I rolled out of bed, got dressed, ran downstairs. And then we're on the way there. And I'm saying to myself, I'm like, I'm a big guy. My friend Bill is about nine feet tall. Shane's a grown <laughs> man. This isn't going to work. Like, there's no room in here. So we're all just cross arms squishing, but it was a great day. You know, we got to go check out that beautiful little fountain area, smoked yeah. a cigar, had a couple of beers it, and everywhere is black and yellow. So it, it was really yeah. nice to be there too for that. So yeah, yeah it was, it was, it was like everybody knew each other their entire lives. There was not never a dull moment. It was, it was a really cool thing to be able to sit there and have discussions like, you know, this is this is where I think libertarians should save that big brain shit, right? It's like, hey, man, you know, you guys want to talk theory and strategy and, you know, the, the different philosophies and authors and, you know, whatever. Like, save that for your meetings with other like like minded libertarians, not when you're out there converting it. I'll tell you what, man, it was just like, I don't know, very stimulating, very like at home uh in, in a very you know different place but it was uh, i don't know probably one of those those trips i'll never forget well and what was cool about it too is like we as libertarians have some inside jokes that nobody else gets yeah. so unless we're hanging around each other it's like how how do i make these jokes and not just sound like a crazy person so it, that's also another fun thing too is to be able to make these like end the fed jokes or you know, jokes about government theft and people get it. And they even if it's not funny, they give you a, a courtesy chuckle. So that's nice, too. That's yeah. always fun. Yeah. And, so uh, go, go ahead. Oh, it was, just it was an awesome weekend, too, to meet so many people who I've been interacting with for a year plus on Facebook 
who are fellow organizers, who are fellow activists, and to just finally meet them in person. You know, I got to meet you. I got to meet Scott Horton. I got to meet Anthony Samaroff. I got to meet countless people who nobody knows their name or what they do, but they're really important in the movement. They do really good behind the scenes work. And it was just really cool to finally shake their hand and be like, hey, let, let's talk for real now. You know, let, let's really get down to brass tacks. And how are you? What's new? So it was really cool. I, I'm so excited for the next one. I, I mean, did you stay for the entire weekend? I did. Yeah. Well, we left Sunday morning, like Sunday right. around noon. So we missed some of the Sunday business, but we were there for the Friday events and the Saturday events. Yeah. Where they, they use some technicalities and, 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 and pushed off the inevitable. Yeah. They, that's really all they did. And they, they came in and said, Nope, you have to be a member for 180 days. We're not re- waiving the rule. Like we always have done. And it was very explicitly done to keep the Mises people out. So now that that's happened, it's kind of like battle lines have been drawn. Everybody's taken their positions and getting ready for next year because like a lot of those people who registered within, say, a month of the convention, they don't even need to become new party members before the next cycle, before their next voting block. And They're already over that six month hurdle. So, yeah, they're they're going to be in for a world of hurt if they don't do something to seriously improve their numbers. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're about out of uh, the, the, the gimmicks and, and, and maneuvers, I should say, political maneuvers that they they use in this, uh, I guess, for Robert's rules and whatever else is governing up there. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the energy that weekend, I mean, just I, I had to get out of there early on Saturday morning um, just because of, you know, the way life is. But, um, you know, the, that energy Friday night, what a what a time, huh? So just when Scott Horton walked in, Dave Smith walked into a standing ovation. That was amazing. There was so much energy going on. And then at the convention, there was over 300 people at the convention. It was way bigger than they were expecting. Yeah, on an off year. So just seeing that amount of energy, you know, I'm from Maine. I'm vice chair for Maine. We have a very tiny state. We don't have a lot of people coming out to our conventions. So to see something like that was pretty inspiring for me, honestly, because I was like, just keep putting the work in and man, you can have a giant convention. And yeah, it was a headache, but it was really cool to see that amount of growth at the same time. Yeah, I know. I, I, you know, when, when I saw that many people show up and the fact that, you know, the the actual party didn't want Dave to speak at their convention and they said, well, screw it, we'll, we'll kind of do our own thing. You know, you can you can tell us we can't speak there, but you're not going right. to shut us up. Like I was like, yeah, right on, man. And the room. Holy cow. I mean, to have three, four hundred libertarians in there going nuts. And I'm talking like, you know, like the alpha type people like this is why they don't want alphas getting together right like this is you know we might not be the smartest but we're definitely pretty loud and Mm -hmm. we can seem aggressive we're we're, maybe a little more knuckle draggy uh than than a lot of libertarians out there we don't really care what other people think of us i I think it's a a great blend of energy uh and i don't know just the, the the whole the whole night was just a, a ton of fun. I had a, a great time meeting everybody. But um, you, I, I guess we should do a little bit of your background. You, um, you, were, you were a soldier in the Army? Yes, yes. I was a heavy equipment operator in the Army from 2010 to 2015. 
And I yeah. went to Afghanistan. I went to Monrovia, Liberia. So I've been around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I was actually uh, talking in my show last night about the the upper armor D nines uh, that were used in, in Fallujah a little bit. So, I mean, uh, the the idea that this this movement is growing uh, more and more amongst you know, especially people in the veteran community, I think is an amazing thing. Um, you have been compelled, I think, uh, through seeing a lot of things maybe that you've seen overseas, uh, and I won't put words in your mouth, but you've you've done a ton, and of those things, uh, you've become an author, and I think you have two books now, not just the the Parasite's Paradise. You also have um, a book on homelessness as, as well, correct? I do, yeah. I have a, a, it's called A Brief Inquiry into the Causes and Solutions Surrounding Homelessness. It's much more of like an introductory academic book into how the homelessness problem was created and what we can do to solve it. And I take a very free market libertarian approach, but at the end of it, I do kind of come back to normie talk and I'm like, and if we devote the same amount of resources now that we've used the free market to clear all these things up, do you see how much more we can actually solve this problem for the people who can't help themselves? So it's one of those like, this is a building block. This is your first piece of the pill, if you will. And I'm working on yeah. my third book now, which is, it's gonna be basically a sales book for liberty activists. So that way when we go out and we're trying to petition, we're trying to do fundraising calls and membership drives, we have something, some type of phone script, some type of email script that we can operate off of because a lot of us don't have sales experience. A lot of us have never asked somebody for money in our life unless it's working at a cash register. So being someone who has sales experience, I feel like that's something I can do. I can help people learn how to ask for money, ask for the signature, ask for them to you know, buy a book or come out to a, some type of event that we have going on. So that's, that's a project I'm working on right now. Yeah, uh, you're a very busy man with with all that's going on. I do want to dive in, in into your book because uh, I think there's plenty to talk about with it. Um, and and as a you know a guy that's got about 15 book ideas, you know, rattling around in his head, I think it's also a good idea to get um, the, the the mechanics of you know, bringing a work to publishing on, on top of everything. But first things first, uh, a parasite's paradise, man. What was, what was your inspiration to do this? Uh, so, all right, fuck it. We can say anything, right? So the truth That's is right. I, I do psychedelics every once in a while. And this kind of came to me during a, a light acid trip. I was like, I really want to write a book, but I had all of these ideas, like you said, and basically what ended up happening is I combined them all into one book. And so kind of being in this creative so, so when state. So when you say it, you had mul you had uh, multiple ideas for different books and you said, screw it, I'm going to, I'm throwing them into one book. Yes. That's pretty much what happened. Okay. Uh, I had this idea, like I wanted to write about Erwin Schiff and I wanted to write about what happened to him. And then I also wanted to write about Duncan Lemp. But I came to the conclusion, like all of these are really short stories. They're like a blog. It's not a book. So let me combine mm -hmm. all of that. And then also, like, how many people have ever heard of the Alien Sedition Acts of 1798? Not a whole lot. But you're going to learn all about it in this book, and you're not even going to realize it. 
So I combined yeah. all of these things that are really boring to most people. And I put it in this fake story, in this fictional historical story. And you get to meet all these really important people like Mises and Rothbard and Paul Krugman and Prescott Bush makes an appearance. There's there's just so many people that, you know, uh, and you might not realize it while you're reading through, but there's there's a little decode section at the end that's going to tell you all of these things like this is what the dates mean. This is what the times mean, the names mean. So that way you can explain to your normie friend like, hey, look, this is who these people are. You can go do some more research. Yeah. Do you, do you mind if we kind of dive into the actual story? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, when I first, when I first read it, um, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to get into. I had no idea that this was kind of like a, a fact fiction book, right? Are, are you a, are you a fan of like, uh, Stephen Prescott or anything? The guy that wrote, um, the gates of fire that, that was turned into, uh, 300, the, you know, like the, the Spartan story. No, actually I don't read any fiction of any kind. I only read yeah. like history and economics. Yeah, well, I, I'll tell you what, you got a real gift for it, because this is kind of what it reminds me of. If you guys have ever read uh, Stephen Prescott, Gates of Fire or anything like that, where it's kind of like faction, like fact meets fiction. Um, it, it's it's a really interesting, very cool, fast read, uh, too. Um, the, the, the the premise, I guess, being that you start life as a slave right in in what 1749 i believe is what it yeah 1749 uh this december 24th right i got into yep. this and i was like all right i think i misread the beginning because i think in the beginning i was like all right this is obviously not about you and i didn't you know i didn't go ahead into the back of the story because i was like i got about halfway through and i was like i gotta go like th this is this is leading to something that he's going to uncover at the end. So I had to fast forward to the end. But um, it's this slave and it's this introduction of living life on a plantation uh, of, of uh, I guess, of, of sort being property of the man. And it just it, it starts to evolve um, with these these little interactions. And I was like, whoa, man, like what is he what is happening here? Has Harrison found some some papers out there that he's like, you know, basically taken from uh, colonial English and transfer translated it basically into modern day English while telling a story. I was just like, my, my brain was just like, this is really like really fun stuff, especially for a libertarian. I think yeah, the amount of firsthand accounts that I read and like the buck breaking stories that are included in the, in the book, yeah. Reading through those accounts. So, tell tell everybody up. what buck breaking is that doesn't know because I mean, you know, it's a it's a really heinous, heinous practice is obviously was was used prolifically. So buck breaking was the act of breaking a young slave, someone who was going to be a problem, you know, a young guy who was strong, who was probably gonna cause some type of ruckus. Well, what they would do is they would humiliate them. They would make them wear short like sacks. So that way their their pecker and their balls were hanging out and they were rubbing on the dirt. They would put bags on their head. This is where the term put a bag on her comes from is they would put bags on the woman's head and then they would make the child go have sex with the mother. And so that was something that happened quite often as a way of buck breaking. 
uh, putting people in hot boxes so that way you can stress them and physically pain them. There were all these ways they had of like psychologically breaking you. So that way you were just Play-Doh in their hands. And I talked about a couple of them in the story. And the one that really hurt the most was reading about them making, God, I'm tearing up just talking about it, making them uh, have some teenager go have sex with their mom and then pulling the bag off after he was done. And it's like, that's just the amount of, the lack of humanity that goes into even thinking of that is just so absurd and disgusting that, you know, when you read something like that, it's like, this is on its own, this is fiction. So something like that just had to go in the book. Yeah, no, yeah, basically I mean, you're right. That Those first bits there, I, I read a lot of firsthand accounts. I read a lot of yeah. these old timey colonial papers and whatnot. And then I kind of used my own brain and turned it into modern day, modern day language. And I do that yeah, throughout I mean, a lot it, of the book. It's, it's masterfully done. I, and I mean that, I mean, it, it is, it's such a, it's such a fun, fast read. Like there are, there are few books out there that I'll pick up and be like, Oh, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. Right. Like a lot of it's philosophy, you know, whether it's, you know, out of Cato or Mises or, or wherever, right. And you're sitting there like, Oh, fuck, this is, boring this is boring this is what libertarian you know libertarianism needs this is you know this is that shot of culture through storytelling that you know we've been terrible at in the past and to to bring to life you know that the uh, kind of fast forward i guess uh, to one of the incidents between dr uh dr moore um, the, the guy that 88 helps out 88 being the main, main character, um, beautifully done by the way. Um, the, 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 who, the, the, the was Erwin, the, the guy that he, that he saves on yes, the street. Yeah. yeah. So Erwin, he, he saves on the street. He takes him to this Dr. Moore's place and they start having, uh, conversations. Yeah. They, he just starts talking to him like a person and he starts, have an 88 who's the slave helping him and he's asking him you know why why are you doing this and he's trying to get to the root of it because he knows there's some reason there and long story short the 88 helps him ends up telling Irwin, hey i'm gonna come back i'm gonna see you again and dr moore is like why would you do that he's nothing to you and he's like well because he's he's a friend of mine now. I, I promised him I have to come back. And he's also kind of concerned at the same time because he doesn't know why he was just getting beat up. He has no clue. So he, uh, if I remember correctly, he goes to leave and him and Dr. Moore have one final exchange where he's like, well, what's your name? You know, and he's like, I'm 88. And he's like, well, when are you going to get a name? And he's like, not till I'm free. And it's like, well, no one knows when that's going to be. And that's kind of the whole crux of the book is for the author to figure out, amongst a lot of other things, when is 88 actually free at what point? Yeah. And I'm not going to spoil the ending and, and maybe we'll kind of leave it there. But I thought it was very interesting that both Irwin uh, and Dr. Moore uh, were like, hey, listen, we're going to work on that name thing. And, um, you know, yeah. you, give you basically some some personhood, right? Yeah, and you really see that relationship build throughout the whole book. They really become a tight-knit family. 
And without giving mm-hmm. too much of the story itself away, at one point they really are family. That they're all they have. And they're fighting against the government. They're trying to make a life for themselves. They're battling real world, normal day hardships. And they're all they have. And they're the most ragtag group you can imagine. You know, it's this guy who's being arrested and sentenced to death for not paying taxes with his old sick wife and then um, some brand new freed-ish slave who's still kind of property. So it's just this, it, and there's so many tangents that get happened on with, you know, different characters you meet who are real world stories like George Floyd is in there, Duncan Lemp is in there. There's just so many so much going on. It's like every time you think you know exactly what just happened, there's something you missed. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, for, for me, it's like it was kind of like reading 1984 um, meets, you know, I don't know, personality, like heart empathy like you know the uh, orwell was very good at writing very sterile pieces that you really didn't give a shit about the, the characters right it was just like this is what's going on this is what's happening but this man you actually really kind of you're, you're you find yourself rooting uh for 88 and you know his, obviously you kind of see you know this evolution because in, in libertarian circles it's it's happened to all of us we've had these realizations and um you know the, the discussions with Irwin about you know well you know you know, your property, but guess what? I'm still a slave, even though I'm quote unquote free, right? Like you see all this kind of stuff. I thought, I thought the use of a number, um, it was, was very, very powerful. And I, I knew exactly where you were going with it from the very beginning. So, um, I won't, let's, let's leave the book at that. Um, let's, I, I will tell you guys, if you haven't, uh, a, a paradise, uh, a, a parasite's paradise. Uh, can they can they order this from your website, or is it also available on Amazon and everything else? Yeah, so you can get the book one of two ways. Basically, either way, you're going to Amazon. You can go to Amazon and just type in my name, Harrison Kemp, or you can go to HarrisonKemp.com and then just click on the books tab, and they're both right there. So either way, it takes you to Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, definitely uh, pick it up. Multi multifaceted incredible layers uh that will actually you know touch your heart and and uh, and elicit emotion uh in you and uh you know you know it's something you can drop on somebody else's uh desk anytime and say hey this is a great book great story and you know and, and not be you know ashamed that you're dropping <laughs> like right. some economics book on somebody's desk or something like that so um now, I, I, I guess what I need to get to um, also well on the topic of your book is when you sat down and you started writing this, obviously, uh, after a, a fun little trip, um, the the idea that you would put this into a book form. How long did it take you? Like the whole process or just coming up with the idea uh, to, to actually write the book? How, how long did it take you to, to write so the writing phase kind of happened in two parts. I got really, really excited about it, did my whole outline, wrote the first few chapters, and that took me about a month. And then I put it away for a little while and I moved and I started a new job and then life took over for about six months. And then I, one day I was like, hey, it's the Rona season. I have nothing to do but finish my book. 
So I went out and I finished my book and I, I sat down and I wrote it all, the first draft of it in about three weeks. So I wrote wow. probably about 150-ish pages of it in about three weeks. It was, it was just one of those things where I had the whole story laid out in my head. And I just kept writing and writing and writing for like eight hours a day. And then once I had the yeah. initial outline done, I gave it to a buddy and I was like, read this and tell me if it's even worth going through and doing a second one on. And mm-hmm. that, so yeah, you had a question? I mean, to, to be able to sit down and write 150, like, you know, as somebody who, who likes to write, who doesn't publish a lot of writing, um, cause I just don't have the time. Um, the, the writing process, are you one of those people that will just, you know, flow of ideas, just keep writing, um, and, and not stop because you got something that doesn't matter or it, and kind of like piece it together later. I go through spurts. It depends on the day. Like some days, if I just don't feel like doing it, if that day it is a chore, if that day it's work, then at like five o'clock, I'm like, all right, time to pack it up and watch TV for the night. But other days I just, I'll literally go till two in the morning. Cause I can't stop. I've got, like you said, the ideas are flowing. And most of the time, that's how it is. Most of the time I just keep going, but Every mm-hmm. once in a while, looking at a computer for that long, sitting in your chair for 12 plus hours a day, you just, you hurt. So you have to take some time off. And what I learned actually doing this book, the first draft of it was that I need to take two days off during the week because if I don't, I'm unproductive the rest of the time. I can't sit in my chair comfortably and think long enough to go. But yeah, it's it's really just a dam and I, I remove the the levee and then the water flows and I write a bunch of crap and then I go back through and I say, all right, I need to adjust the timelines and I need to make sure this person is actually in that place where they're supposed to be because there's a lot of moving parts in the book. So the mm-hmm. hardest part was actually the second edit because in the original edit, it was just like a bunch of word salad and I had to then make sure that all of those timelines were right because otherwise someone would come in and be like no you said that he was born in uh 49 but here we are in 60 you know 1760 and somehow he's 20 years old you know the story's ruined for me so i couldn't have that and as you know because you you've looked at the decode part of it right there's there's a lot of little tiny intricacies that are coded in there that I had to make sure were just right. And all of those tiny intricacies tell a story of their own that is just kind of like, make your own assumption off of this. I'm giving you this kernel, make an assumption. So I thought that was one of the greatest parts is like at the end, you have all this laid out. And I, ha- I don't think I've seen this in, a, in another book. I, I think, you know, to, to bring in the inspiration uh, into your writing and to show people why you did things. I, I think it almost, you know, automatically creates this, uh, um, what's the, like, the, you know, what they, they call a cult following, right? Like this, uh, this really yeah. neat fan base um, where you can go, Oh man, like I'm, I'm all about, you know, these stories and these ideas and the fact that, you know, these can be woven into a story over 240 plus years ago. You're like, it's, that's a, that's a gift, man. Like to, to have those ideas. I mean, uh, 
I'll get into where the ideas come from here in a minute. But um, I, in, in terms of mechanics, because I think we need a lot more people publishing stories. And I, I think, um, you know, we've got some good dreamers and we've got some great minds out there uh, without some, you know, understanding and know-how. You're, you're a published author. How did you go about getting your, your book published? I owe it all to Tom Woods. So I, uh, <laughs> I was sitting there listening to the Tom Woods show as every good libertarian does. And he's like, Hey, if you are, you know, if you want to get your website, make sure you use my link. So I used the link. And then from there, I found out Tom Woods has this whole package where he'll teach you how to self publish a book. So then I took that course and I went, Holy crap, that's actually really easy to do. So I self-published my first book and then I started selling it and then I went and I self-published my third, my second one. And now I'm doing my third one. So with really no know-how, you can spend two hours watching a couple of YouTube videos and then you, you can do it. I mean, it's not as cool and glamorous as getting a deal with like Regery or, or Regery or whoever that is, you know, Penguin Publishing, whatever. But truth be told, they only pick up like 1% of the books that ever come to them, you know, and then from that, you're not going to make shit for commission. So if you self-publish, you're going to make 60% of the commission on every book. So once they take away the printing costs, the shipping fee and whatnot, you're left making $2 rather than 70 cents. So, I mean, yeah. you don't have to be a genius to figure out that if you know how to do a little bit of marketing, self-publishing is the way to go. I, I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, to totally awesome. Uh, there goes my my awesome Canon camera oh, after no. 30, 30 minutes. No, we're good. There it is. <laughs> all I got to do, do is reset it. Um, I wanted to talk about one other aspect of your book that I, I found, um, you know, I, I guess somewhere where this book would be extremely useful, uh, and that is urban America. People... Uh, I think that have been indoctrinated in urban areas. I, I, I think this would be absolutely fascinating uh, to leave copies around and to see, um, you know, people's reaction to these things. That, yeah, I would actually be very interested to see their reaction. And, you know, everyone who is from urban America that I know who's read my book has pretty much the same reaction to it. And that's, holy shit, I can't believe all of that was real. So, you know, just wait till the next book like this comes out about the uh, Black Wall Street. That one's really going to fuck with people. So <laughs> Black Wall Street, you give me a preview. Um, so, yeah, you know, the you know, the like Tulsa bombings and how they took out, you know, yes. Black Wall Street. Right. So basically, I'm going to go with the race riots and all that, but it's going to be set in I'm going to set it in Russia. And it's going to be between the, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie rather than blacks and whites. And then it's going to be that the bourgeoisie comes in and destroys a whole proletariat town. So I'll tell the exact same story, but with bourgeoisie and proletariats rather than blacks and whites and really see what kind of response we can get from it. I love it. 
That's so cool. Like, uh, you got a gift, Harrison. I, I got to tell you, man, I, I probably would have been picking your brain more about this being an author while we were at lunch. I'm glad I didn't spoil it uh, there. And uh, now we have it here on, on record so that we can uh, push it out to anybody and everybody out there. Um, so if you are out there, man, go support Harrison in his book and in his uh, authorship of these. Uh, I mean, just I think. They're going to be, I think they're going to be classics, man. Like I'm, I'm super excited for you with this stuff. Seriously. Good stuff. I'm blushing. Oh, thank you so much. Shane. I, I really appreciate that. You know, um, I really appreciate let, that. Let's, yeah. I, I, I mean it uh, from the bottom of my heart. Um, I, I want to talk about also the creative process for you. Um, I think this goes absolutely understated. And when we sit here and we have, um, discussions like this, you know, we're a couple of vets and, you know, the idea that anybody um, from the federal government would, you know, suspend our very natural and inalienable right to consume uh, psychedelics from nature, given that we have a, you know, what the, the, the pioneering gland in our brains, like, I think it is absolutely absurd. Is this is this one of the, you know, the aspects that you use for creativity? Not all the time, but sometimes, yes. Sometimes I just use yeah. it for healing purposes, meditative purposes. Uh, it, it definitely can be part of the creative process if you decide to use it that way, though. I, I found that when trying to use it, I don't do microdosing. I don't like that. I prefer to do my doses just hits, you know, big ones, you know, have five grams and call it a, an experience for the next year, you know. So I don't do these like I don't I don't do it that way. You know, I just have okay. a big hit, big trip, whatever I'm thinking. Like when I was writing my book, for instance, I did two days back to back. The first day was about myself. It was about clearing my brain, helping myself identify problems and finding solutions. And the second day I was like, all right, let me focus on this book. Now that I've worked on me, I've identified, I've cried, I've gotten scared of some shadows let me now focus on the, the book and i did less of a dose and i just kind of sat there with a camera and a friend and i spitballed for hours just weaving this story in and out and in and out and he's just looking at me like i'm a crazy person and i'm like no there's this circle that goes around and it's the prison planet and then 88 is the you know infinity and i'm like he's like i don't know what you're saying and that all of that kind of converged into one 206 page book. Yeah. So uh, and mean, then other parts of the creative, like after that, that's how I get the main idea. You know, mm -hmm. after that, it just comes down to following through with the writing portion of it. And for that, it's not really a creative process as much as it is. I just I have enough of it laid out that. Once I get the general outline laid out, I just keep typing and whatever comes out of my head and onto the keyboard is the first draft. So it's just it's this self-confidence thing. You know, you have to know that what you're typing is worth typing. And then if it's not, oh, well, you throw it away and nobody ever knows. No one's going to pick on you because they didn't see some bad paragraph you wrote, you know. So sure. that's the big one is have some have some confidence in yourself. And have a friend who you can hand your first draft over to and say, hey, is this worth my time to pursue or not? 
And if they say, dude, this is horrible, this isn't even like English, then maybe you need to change your direction, start a new project. But if they're like, no, you're, you're onto something, here's some feedback, then keep going forward. Have you ever tried uh, writing a book before this? No, I actually always hated writing. I hated writing when I was a kid. I hated reading when I was a kid. It wasn't until after the army, once I discovered cannabis, that I actually got into reading and writing and being kind of creative, you know, so it's, it's funny. It's like, you know, I got off all these pharmaceuticals that the government had put me on that they like shoved me on. Yeah. I had this salad that for a second. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I was like, on I mean, a salad. What were you on? Oh man, they, I, I'm telling you right now, like they tried to throw, uh, uh, I went in for, I don't know, my last check, uh, and that was years ago now. And they asked me, you know, how was I doing mentally, physically and all that fun stuff. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm a productive member of fucking society. Kiss my ass. I don't, I'm not going to tell you guys I have PTSD or anything like I, I and I, and maybe I didn't even know it. Right. Um, I had uh, Chick-fil-A for breakfast. So my, my blood was like gravy. And they gave me cholesterol medicine two weeks later in the mail. And with that, a real nice package of some type of, I, I imagine, uh, you know, uh, mood, quote unquote, stabilizer or something like that for, um, for, for my consumption with unlimited refills. And I was just like, fuck this, man. It's all going right in the trash. I never, I never got any more of it. I never re-upped, that's for sure. Yeah, you? when... when- well, man, when I got out, I was on, I had a knee brace. I was on a cane. I was barely moving. I was on seven pills a day. I was a zombie, you know, and I went from that to, I found cannabis, got off all of the, the psych pills, you know, the depression, the anxiety, the sleep. Yeah. And then after that, I was like, man, this is working. Let me start trying some topicals for the inflammation and then lo and behold, within a month, I was off all the other pharmaceuticals. So it, I'm six wow. years off pharmaceuticals now, you know, five and a half years off pharmaceuticals. And before I got off of them, I was just lethargic working a dead end job, you know, working at like some some gym part time. And I got off of them. I got a sales job making good money. And then I started writing and then I started podcasting and, you know, it's like pre-cannabis Harrison and post-cannabis Harrison are two different people because now if I didn't have all of those, those physical and mental ailments, I probably wouldn't have done cannabis. You know, I had no, no reason to, there was no in for me. I was a Navy brat when I was young. So I was always taught drugs are the worst thing you can do. So when I got out of the army, if I wasn't messed up, I wouldn't have needed pharmaceuticals, which means I wouldn't have, been interested in cannabis so it's kind of this weird circle you know <laughs> pharmaceuticals are a gateway drug to to better <laughs> drugs that's right <laughs> it, it's I, like, I think it's a it's awesome it is and, and I mean, some people are addicted to it like i notice myself if i don't have cannabis for a day or two in a row i feel like shit but it's not a mental thing. It's not like I got the sweats. I'm detoxing. It's like, man, my joints really hurt right now. You know, it's, mm. it, it's different. And whereas like back when I had to take the pharmaceuticals, if I didn't take them for a day or two, my stomach would hurt. I'd like start getting the sweats. I couldn't sleep right. Or I was an asshole. 
So it's a totally different, different thing. I, I think so. Very similar experience, man. I, I, I did not have uh, any any salad from the VA. I just kind of refused because I was a hard headed, uh, you know, bastard. I wasn't going to let them into my personal life or anything like that. And so, uh, I mean, the the idea, you know, cannabis hits, right? Like you start down that road and then all of a sudden you're going, what am I doing? Like, why? Why am I? Why am I staying in this, you know, dead end job? Why am I not producing more why am i not like keeping up you know you know with this type of you know regiment or or whatever it is the motivation factor in terms of you know getting your getting you off your ass and being a net producer versus being a net consumer i mean it changed everything and at the same time it just hardened my resistance to the government at the same time because what you know it's super super high doses of like you know, THC edibles will do to you in terms of showing you some things along with, you know, like psilocybin. Um, it is, it, it's something that you see it and you go, man, I understand exactly why this shit is now, you know, yeah. grounds for killing people, right? Like it, this shit's dangerous for status. Oh, can you, there we go. So yeah, I got before I got into psychedelics of any kind, cannabis, I, I was kind of an asshole, angry person all the time. And like I said, so it's funny, I get, I get out of the army in November of 2015. I'm like on a cane. I have knee problems, back problems, can't sleep. And then I make the switch over to cannabis. Six months later, I do my first Spartan obstacle race three miles over the obstacles and whatnot. And then a couple months after that, I do a 16 mile one over the mountains. So it's like, wow. really the pharmaceuticals were the way to go. I went to a plant and I can run, I can jump, I can lose weight. Like none of this makes sense. And when you realize that you were lied to from such an early age about something so helpful, now it can be used in an unproductive way. That is always the truth. Sure. Like anything can be, but for the most people who use it properly, who know how to use it properly for themselves, especially if they're doing it for medical purposes, it's such a life changer. It, like, I don't like drinking anymore. I, I would much I rather either. smoke, you know, and it's just, I feel better. I'm more relaxed. I'm in less pain. I feel more like me, like how I'm supposed to feel. And it's almost like we have these receptors in our brain that are meant to attach to cannabinoids, you know? It's yeah, almost that, like it's that whole endocannabinoid system. If I was going to yeah. name it, that's what I'd name it, the endocannabinoid system. Right. I mean, it's, it's almost like we have this crazy. thing perfectly meant to accept cannabis into our bodies. <laughs> but yeah, al um, and alcohol is poison. So what, which would you rather have? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, there's a there's so many books I'm thinking about at this moment. Um, the you ever read uh, the the invention of air? I, I may have asked you this in I, I did ask the you this. We, we did talk air. about no, you've, the invention of you've told me about it, but I haven't gotten it yet. No. Yeah, go. It, it's very interesting. Probably pretty boring for the average reader. 
but you know it's it's one of those things where you know the the stimulant for the brain um you know in terms of coffee shops and all that kind of stuff is very much related to where human society has kind of made big jumps at the same time uh as freedom uh was percolating right like it's kind of this underlying theme that like hey man as brains are thinking we're thinking about more things in terms of liberty in terms of freedom which obviously causes great expansions uh and great lift in the human condition but the uh the whole the i this the psychedelics you know in what you were talking about in terms of not only body um in terms of spirituality and maybe uh getting you know more connected to something so ancient and so human um is it, is it, really kind of had a revelation on me is is that been your case at all it's yeah it's completely changed my spiritual outlook on the world you know once you realize that everything you were taught is wrong you start going back to your bases and relearning everything and when you allow yourself to start relearning things as an adult you come to find out that a lot of what you had known, you don't really care about, you don't really agree with, it's just been drilled into you. So like I was raised as a Catholic and now the closest thing I identify to is a Hindu. And it's because I have a much different, I have a spiritual belief now, I don't have a religious belief. You know, I, I think yeah. that we're all connected in some way, whether it be consciousness or whether, it, I, and when we get into this, it's like, unless you have done psychedelics in a group of people, it's very hard for you to understand how we could all just be connected as one, like in a conscious manner. You know, when, when you have six or seven people who are all seeing the exact same thing and you're all on the same drug, it's like, maybe there's more to this than meets the eye, you know? Uh, and especially when you think about like, psilocybin doesn't make more parts of your brain active it deactivates parts of your brain so you're taking in less filler and mm -hmm. we as humans only see about 0.05 percent of the light spectrum so if we're taking in less than that and we're filtering out some visible light there that means there's other things there that are being hidden so whether it's all being done in your brain or it's really there it's very interesting to think about and then all of that yeah, ties I, back into libertarianism. You know, if you think that we're all beautiful, independent creatures or on the flip side, that we're all one connected on a conscious level, why wouldn't you want us all to be free to experience that consciousness and have the most fulfilling life experience we can? Have you have you read The Immortality Key by any chance? I have not. No. Did I just Ooh, quote man, part of you it? Should edit. Uh, well, you, you you'd really like it. Uh, it it's it's this uh, guy Ben. Uh, he's actually been on the Rogan show, but I uh, had a, a couple of listeners recommend it. And man, I'll tell you what a what an amazing person um, Ben uh, Maraska, I think is how you say his last name. But he goes into this talk. Uh, he he's a, ling a classically trained linguist. I mean, the guy knows every damn language you know, that, that's basically circulating uh, in, in most major countries. And I mean, he knows ancient Greek. He knows, I think, some Russian. He knows, you know, everything in terms of Spanish and French. He can go into Italian. Uh, he can go into uh, Latin. 
Aramaic, all the you know Farsi and the 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 the, 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 the Middle Eastern dialects and things like that. And on top of it, he's done his research in botany, in anatomy, in uh, in religious Damn. history, and archaeology and shit. And you're just sitting there like, this guy's better than Indiana Jones. And what he does is he kind of ex- he, he he explores psychedelics in terms of spirituality, not religion, spirituality long before Christ and everybody else. Like where all these things in terms of, uh, you know, ancient Greece and Lucia and um, I mean, the, the the ergot that grows on the wheat where they were making ancient beer and, and then goes into wine later on. And like all these psychedelics where the truth about spirituality has been completely bleached out of what current day religion is, right? And and like all these people that were having, you know, these amazing, you know, experiences and and trips where they had shamans and everything else that were around as a as as a group of people that were uh, very in tune with their spirituality, and they've just just taken it out of you know our, our current modern day understanding for obvious control. Well, if you look at simple things like organs from a long time ago, they're all meant to play very certain frequencies and they're all healing frequencies like 528 or their 963 that helps to invoke this creative mind that we have. Or maybe it'll even Mm -hmm. be 741, which is meant to really piss you off. So it depends on the context of the speaker as to how they would play the organ, you know. But what they could do is they knew that they could use these to heal people, to invoke people. And whether that's real or not, that's like whether you can actually do it or not. This was something they thought this was part of their spiritual belief that we just look at it now and we're like, oh, those were those were really cool organs. And we never talk about the fact they thought that they were literally invoking emotions in people with them. It's just completely gone from history. So yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, no, I, there, there's so much out there, uh, you know, and, and I think that's maybe uh, one of my most um, childlike desires as a 41 year old now is like, man, everything that I'm learning that I've been, you know, denied basically by this, this power group out there uh, that I call the murder cold is just like, I, I can't wait to learn more about it and to, and to see, you know, stories evolve and, and to read, you know, books like what, what you've done here uh, with, you know, a parasite's paradise. Like, I am, I'm super excited about the future. I am too. Really. I'll tell you the truth, man. If I had a million dollars, I would spend it to buy copies of my book. Well, first I would hire somebody to make me a nice, a nice cover. Cause this one looks like shit. You can tell I made this myself, dude, but I would pay someone to make a nice at? cover. And yeah, top lobster, make me a cover, dude. Appreciate you. Um, <laughs> and then I would spend a million dollars to just buy copies that I could hand out that. So if there's a mystery millionaire out there, you know what to do. Yeah, um, we we got to find <laughs> some of those guys, and I'll tell you, uh, very worthwhile, especially uh, for people who uh, are very uh, into the history of slavery in America, uh, what it is, what it was, um, what it will continue to be without some type of awakening. But we are we're, we're running up on an hour, Harrison. Um, it's it goes fast. How can this audience help you? Where can they find you? Tell them everything. 
All right. So, um, Number one thing you can do is go to harrisonkemp.com. That is the central hub for everything I got going on. You can find my podcast, The Harrison Kemp Incident. You can find my books. You can find information about the Libertarian Party of Maine and what we're doing. Uh, Tell you quickly, dude, we just got our ban on no-knock warrants, our bill to do that, passed through committee unanimously. So we are, yeah. So Maine is quickly becoming a very libertarian state, even though things are very fucked up at the same time. We have we don't have to register guns that are under a 50 cal. We don't have to like we have legal weed. Yeah, you have to get a license. But as long as you don't as long as you get pulled over and you have a gun, it doesn't matter. Like you get pulled over with a gun and weed. They don't give a damn. You are free to go like it should be. Exactly. (laughs) And then now we're getting rid of no knocks. So. You know, once we get rid of some of these taxes, then we'll we'll be a pretty safe state for you to come move to. But um, other than that, I am one of the managers at Free Speech Media. So you can check us out on Facebook.com forward slash Free Speech Media. We have all kinds of content from the Libertarian Spectrum, seven days a week streaming. And actually at 1030 tonight on there, we have Scott Schluter, who is making a special announcement about his governor candidacy for Illinois. So if you are interested in that, check that out. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm, I'm running the, the Helios initiative and I'd love to maybe talk to him if he's going to be doing that. Yeah, he is. He well, I'm not saying what he is or isn't doing till 1030 tonight. So, you know, <laughs> passing my contact. Uh, um, anything else? Yeah, so, yeah. So go if you want to find my my most recent book, um, if you go to the books by Harrison page on my website, you can check out the GoFundMe for my newest book because I'm trying to raise some funds for that so that way I can hyper-focus on that. And the idea is to be able to really crank that book out in the next two months, get it off and have a month of editing and publishing, and then have it in people's hands by September 11th. So if we can get people to start donating there, we can crank out some more books and get these books out to folks. You get all kinds of goodies for donating. So make sure you check that out. Um, and then you can find all of my social media stuff on there as well. So the one convenient spot is harrisonkemp.com. And then just follow the tabs around till you find the thing you're most interested in. Harrison, it has been a pleasure uh, getting to know you, uh, talking to you again, having you here on the show. And I, man, I'll tell you, what, I'm excited for what you're going to do. Um, ladies and gents, go out there, pick up. A Parasite's Paradise. It is a fantastic book. Um, it's a it's a fun, fast, easy read. Support Harrison any way you can. Uh, thanks again, man, for for doing the show. Dude, thanks for having me on. It's been awesome getting to know you too. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for a while, so getting to know you has been really cool. And we'll have to do this again sometime. I'm I'm absolutely humbled, and you got it anytime and uh, whatever we can do in terms of books. You're just going to keep pouring them on me. I'll keep reading them. That's the goal, man. I'm, I'm trying to do one real book a year, like one 200 plus page book a year, and then one smaller book like my book on homelessness. That's only about 60 pages. It's just a quick, basically an extended blog, you know, and you can actually read that for free on the computer on my website, or you can buy it in a nice little paperback version. So I prefer paperback. Typical. 
Typical unmotivated stoner, man. I'll tell you what. No. Hey, uh, (laughs) take care, Harrison. (laughs) I appreciate you, brother. Uh, We'll be talking soon. It was awesome. Uh, Everybody, thank you so much. Uh, I love you. I need you. Peace. Um, Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff.